Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guests are Richard Watson and Stuart Bridges of Inigo. This podcast is a really enjoyable encounter, wholly because of the unexpected way these two executives decided to conduct themselves. You see, in the build-up to an interview like this, I usually circulate some sample questions beforehand. This is to get the subjects comfortable and to be able to gather their best thoughts before we start recording. A podcast really doesn't work very well if all you're trying to do is trip the interviewee up or say something that they will later regret. That kind of thing is really best left with high-end political news programmes where politicians are endlessly evasive and interviewers are always interrupting. Anyway, the night before this recording, Richard emailed me suggesting that we ditch my list of questions and that he and Stuart should interview me instead. A bit of broking later and we ended up with elements of both ideas. I hope you enjoy it. Listening back is definitely something different. But then, no one in the 153 episodes preceding this interview has ever suggested we do anything like this. I think what follows is a great advert for the business Richard, Stuart and their teams are building. The two are different, they're original, and they're free thinkers who are happy to share their ideas and quite a lot of their own unique personalities. They're clearly also having the time of their lives running a business that is looking to underwrite in excess of $1.2 billion of premium in its third year, which is, perhaps unsurprisingly, ahead of the original plan. Enjoy the podcast. Richard, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. And Stuart, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Your first time, but a veteran over here, veteran podcaster. <laughs> well, welcome to Inigo. Good to see you here. Well, it's really good to be here. Very bright and colourful offices. We were chatting actually before we hit the record button about offices. There's some competition amongst insurers to have funky offices these days to keep the brokers attracted. I think they've probably all got better things to worry about now or bigger opportunities to worry about. But certainly, I do think offices reflect the personality of the business. So we did want to kind of create something that was striking and memorable. It is. Um, and at the same time, at the risk of being cheap, you know, it was cheap. You know, we just didn't want to go too crazy on it. But I don't think someone gives us $800 million so we can have a flash office. So, you know, trying to do it in a sort of cool but stylish way, it's been good fun. Just for the benefit of listeners who haven't been here, bright yellow and black greets you, sort of very wasp sort of vibe. And that's reflected in the Indigo logo, isn't it? I'm not sure these days been described as waspish. Well, it's wasp, but I mean, it's literally like a, a li- <laughs> I, I, I realise, like realize, I just, not, yes, but yeah, I like thought it'd be vaguely amusing. wasp insect. Yeah. Probably in this market, it doesn't matter whether you've got nice offices or not. Brokers are going to have to come see you anyway, even if it was a horrible, austere environment with very hard seats. They'd still be queuing up to see you because it's a different market. So why don't you give us a bit of an update on where you are now? Because it was two years ago when we last spoke. There's an element of truth in that, of course, that in this market, people will come and find you. But if you're trying to build a business for the long term, you do have to create a business that people want to come and trade with, business where you can add a level of technical knowledge and information for customers and for brokers, an office and a company that's easy to deal with, one that's known by the customers and by the local brokers outside of the UK. And our first two years has been trying to build all of that capability. And that's not easy. I mean, it takes time. And I suppose one of the big features of the first two years of of Inigo has been the kind of wall of challenge and work and offers and people wanting to come and trade. And it is just incredibly time consuming. So that's a wonderful problem to have. But I don't think in that sort of immediate sense of opportunity and dealing with today's whatever's on the email or whoever's knocking on the door of the office, 
I don't think you want to forget the kind of medium and long-term picture of creating something sustainable and attractive for the long term. So the first two years have really been taking the first steps in that journey. And I suppose every business plan's out of date the minute you actually hit print. But in terms of that first business plan, presumably you've done everything you said that was going to happen on that. And you've built out the lines and the capabilities and have hired the underwriters and you've done all of that. We have. And I think it's underlined to me the importance of the time we took at the beginning of the process to plan well. So the idea that we didn't rush into the markets with a half-baked plan and then end up nowhere near it. I mean, we spent months, it was the advice of Evercore to spend several months really doing the plan risk by risk bottom up so that it did sustain not only investor scrutiny, but that it did mean as you proceed in your first couple of years, you were more likely than not to be on plan and performing well. And and that is not only good from the point of view of planning and resourcing, but it's also good for credibility with your investor base, but also with your regulators as well. I think they like to see a plan put forward and for you to hit it and be close to it. And luckily, and maybe not surprisingly, in the marketplace we find ourselves in, we've managed to get on the right side of that plan. So to get better rates, more volume, higher up in terms of exposure, all the sort of exceedance that you would like. The first years have not been without challenge. You know, you've had hurricanes, we've had Russia and Ukraine, but it's good to see us performing so close to plan. Obviously, you would have planned to under-promise and slightly over-deliver, but presumably the market itself has over-delivered. Is it fair to say that it has over-delivered? It has been pretty good. I would say it's, it's a better market than we anticipated whenever we put the business plan together. And certainly the growth that we had envisaged in the plan, which was quite adventurous, we very much delivered. And I think that is very much liked by the brokers, the regulators, and the people around us to actually do what we said we would do in the first place. Obviously, when you started the business, insurance was in an upswing and a resetting sort of mode, particularly specialty insurance, London market insurance in general. So it was a good time to start. And then obviously, much more recently, reinsurance has caught up. You know, we used to say that the reinsurance tail often used to wag the dog in hardening market cycles, and this time it hadn't, but it woken up lately and decided to wag quite hard and harder than people perhaps expected. But obviously, your buyer and a seller of reinsurance, has it given you more headaches than it's, than it's solved? It's given us more opportunity than a headache, and clearly we've had the same challenges in finding the sort of retro capacity that you would want or the reinsurance capacity you want at the prices you think are fair and reasonable. So I don't think we're unique in facing that challenge. But as a big writer of reinsurance and a big writer of big-ticket direct property business that is very often cat-exposed, the opportunities are huge for us. So the opportunities to not only charge a rate but to find yourself in the position you want to on the program with the sublimits and the conditions in the wording that you want is better now than we ever could have anticipated when we started. And presumably for you, Stuart, that's quite a financial challenge. There's a lot of rebalancing, presumably, that goes on because you're rebalancing the insurance because maybe that's having to take higher retentions, etc. not being able to buy the same amount of retro and probably at the same time wanting to sell more insurance. And it, presumably there's a lot of work for you to make sure that you're in control of how that affects the overall balance of your business. A lot of work. Then we have to recognise that every plan has to be dynamic and move with markets. One of the advantages of being our size and our scale is we can move very fast and we can change very fast. But interestingly, going back to the comment, we spent a lot of time putting the plan together at the beginning. I think one thing that does is make sure that we keep our focus on the limited number of lines of business that we write, the characteristics of those lines of business, and how do we keep that radical simplicity in the business and challenge ourselves on that. 
because it's very easy to get distracted and think you should look at this line of business, that line of business, or a load of other alternatives. But I think the plan has kept us very grounded in terms of the focus that we've kept. So we don't expect you to start planting flags all over the place and opening up new lines and new territories and all sorts of things. You can shoot me when we do that. <laughs> yeah, I know that's far from the plan at the moment. I think the opportunity doing what we do is still huge and very much an untapped opportunity for us. So I don't see the need to go and do that. And certainly the drive we've tried to have for keeping this a very simple business, so one office, one capital base, those are advantages that show themselves probably every day. So the idea of straying away from that, it would have to be an incredibly compelling proposition and we we don't see that at the moment. So London's been a very good place and London do you think has fared pretty well in this second phase of this global market hardening, do you think? The London's getting the showing and it's still a great place to be and you don't feel like you have to go and chase business elsewhere. I think when we talked before, we might have touched on it in terms of the reasons we set up were many and varied, but the Lloyd's market is a great place to trade what we trade. The depth of talent in the London market, I think, is huge. The brokers we deal with, the staff that we employ, the professional service firms around the edges. I mean, this is a great place and London is a great place to live. So there's lots of reasons why we want to do that. I think London is doing well, but I would suggest it could do better. From my point of view, you want to, at points like this, see whether you can get 10% more business across into London and hopefully keep it 10% longer. And if you can make those sorts of changes, we could sit here and say the London market is doing well. When I think about what it could do to do more, I kind of break it down in my own mind to four things. You know, one is do we as a marketplace deliver true expertise? Do we deliver capacity that matters? Are we really close with the client and the local broker? The local broker, I mean, really the sort of client exec, the person talking to the customer at the end of the chain. And fourthly, are we easy to use? And I would rate us probably in different lines at different levels on those four kind of categorizations. And I think for us and the London market, one of the big challenges is continuing to kind of see the importance of those four things and then doing it. Do we genuinely deliver expertise in the products that we sell as a marketplace? Are we easy to use? Do we genuinely know not just the London broker, but the local broker? Are we visiting and adding value in the transaction? Are we telling the client something new about the risk they're running or factors they could do to mitigate risk or any of these sorts of value-added processes? And I think as an industry, we've got a pretty poor record of doing that. And it's very easy in London, I think, to react to the thing that's nearest and in front of you, which is a London broker with a slip that needs filling now. And it's very easy to get distracted from the longer term goal of being good in all of those sort of categories. So I hope that we as a business, and I hope as the market don't lose sight of the need to really be good at all four. And that is hard work and it's time and effort, time on an aeroplane, time invested in understanding the science of risk in trying to kind of be able to help customers not avoid risk, but sort of manage the risk. And those are all things that we set the business up to try and help people. And just before we move on, in terms of the way that everything at one one has been thrown up in the end, it's all landed in a slightly different place from where it was. Has it opened up any new opportunities that you think, wow, this is a better opportunity than I thought, or maybe a potential line that you weren't thinking of going into that you're thinking, right, if we don't do it now, we're never going to do it. I hate saying no, not really, but no, not really. I think the lines of business we're in, we have added a few from the original product set. So we've added finance institutions, we've added onshore energy, we've just added cyber, or certainly as far as the big ticket version of cyber goes. Those all represent, I think, good opportunities for us, and particularly for our customer base and broker base. I think those are good things for us to pursue. There are other lines that we've looked at and considered and discounted. 
mostly because it felt as though there wasn't a compelling need for us to be in those markets. No one was knocking on the door saying, we want another offshore energy market. And they don't, you know, so why the hell would I want to give in it? I want to be pulled into a market, not have to fight my way in and, and upend the whole thing. So from my perspective, I'm very happy with the lines of business that we have. We add value. We are needed. I think we give leadership. So from that point of view, I don't see that anything that happened at one one it might shift the relative percentages in the portfolio, but it won't dramatically you change. You can sort the of be stronger and deeper in the lines that I you're already so. in, and, and you'd be ha- and happier in those lines. Over the moon. Time for an ad break. We'll get back to the podcast after this very brief message. So much has changed in the last few years, not least in Bolton Associates' world of recruiting actuaries and insurance. There is more and more need for actuaries and cap modelers. Demand is outstripping supply. But this is not the first time we've seen this. Bolton Associates has operated in this market for over 20 years. We know what attracts candidates to roles and what matters in this hybrid working world. We're having conversations with firms all needing actuaries, be they syndicates, MGAs, brokers. They need pricing actuaries, heads of capital, reserving specialists. Plus the larger players looking at restructures are asking us to find group roles, such as CRO, chief actuary and some CFOs. The actuarial skill set really does now reach all levels of the board. In 2022, several senior actuaries took the CEO role, with more to come in 2023, so watch this space. And this is where the Bolton Associates Network comes into play. We can build your actuarial function and also draw on our established network to find those actuaries who have skills not only with numbers, but with leadership, people and specific insurance knowledge. 2023 has many exciting events for Bolton Associates coming up, keeping the market linked up, engaged and hopefully having a bit of fun We're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So if you want us to find your elusive actuary, fresh new juniors, or hear which firms are looking after their staff, then do get in touch. We're on Lime Street, so we're pretty easy to find, unlike that reinsurance pricing actuary you're currently struggling to hire. Let's speak soon. Get in touch at bolton-associates.co.uk. Our last podcast, when I listen back to them, I try and think of a phrase often that comes out of it to use as the title of the podcast. And the last podcast, I ended up titling it Low Ego and High Collaboration, which is a phrase you'd use towards the end of our our discussion, which really struck with me. It sounds like a really good place to work. And I know you wanted to change this around, perhaps as your low ego coming out here, that you wanted to talk to me and widen this out and have a more broad discussion about the market in general, rather than make it all about you guys, which is good low ego and high collaboration of you. But uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but now, now you analyse it like that, I think, <laughs> I, I, I hope you're right. But I actually thought it would be interesting to, one, have a broader discussion. I think in 1979, I think I was probably going to a Clash concert and Stuart was going to Cambridge. So I thought it'd be great if we could actually have somebody here who was educated. And you spend your life talking to all of the sort of industry CEOs, you get to see businesses, you get to hear about businesses, probably an awful lot more than any of us do. So I I genuinely think you probably undervalue your viewpoint and perspective on the marketplace. So I think there's a lot of your listeners who would be quite intrigued to hear more from you in terms of your views of the market, who's doing what well, what are the mistakes people keep making that you sit there on the sidelines thinking, what on earth is going on? You know, why do they do this? So I think it would be interesting if uh, if I'm going to try and drag your opinion into this more. Well, here goes nothing. You know, I mean, what's the worst that can happen is everyone switches off in disgust. Exactly. They write in and complain and you can ignore so what questions do you want to talk about? So I thought I'd underarm bowling. Okay, so the, the easy underarm bowling question I wanted to ask you was your best and worst interview. Goodness knows how many hundreds of these you've done. What do you think was the best One and the worst? One interview terminated with the subject of the interview falling asleep. 
Shall, perhaps I actually won't name this person, but it was in Monte Carlo, one of those long hots of dog day afternoons in Monte Carlo. You're and excusing him. It was now, after aren't you? KRW. After KRW. No, actually, no, it was Graham Chilton. <laughs> it was just one of those days. I think it was after KRW, and we we're talking about very esoteric end of the retro market about you know, something. And, you know, he just he, he nodded off. <laughs> I'd already got enough. It was in my old school tape recorder. I have a strange feeling that Graham Children would not mind. I think he's he's a big enough fellow not to mind you uh, you naming him as the worst. Well, hopefully, hopefully not. But it's, it's all and the true. best. What was the best? That's more fun to talk about the best. Well, obviously you. You were fantastic because my broadband went down, so we had a first attempt in the morning. We, we were did. scheduled to do an interview, and you were very gracious. You know, I just my image froze, and I, you know, I couldn't hear you. You couldn't talk, and it was the classic thing. One of these sort of Zoom calls that was going wrong, and then couple of emails later you'd set up another meeting for that same afternoon that was fantastic so that was very good but actually Clive Washburn's been one of the best interviews because I didn't know him before but I knew of him like lots of people probably did and I knew that once he did Navium I knew that he'd be a person to have on the podcast he would have a view wouldn't he you know he'd have an opinion which was fantastic his first line was I asked him why he did Navium he could have done anything and he said well I've been thinking about it and, and it was my ego and it was one of those great moments where you think oh I'm gonna have to disarming disarming honesty yeah, absolutely. I wasn't expecting that at all. And, and that's what's great, because I can write a load of questions. And often I do that in the cold light of day, and, and I'm trying to be helpful. And so I might do them a week in advance to give you lots of time to prepare. And so there's no surprises, because podcast is not about doorstepping someone. Yeah, It's consensual, and it's about trying to get somewhere really interesting within the bounds of things that we're actually happy to talk about. I can't ask you about things that you're not happy to talk about. There's no point doing that, because it'll just be a very short podcast if you're saying, yeah. sorry, no comment. Sorry, no comment. So as far as, I mean, we talked a little bit there about some individuals, as far as companies go, when you sit down and talk to different companies, is it possible, maybe you'll be offending too many people, but is it possible to say, who do you think continues to impress? I mean, when, whenever you touch that organization, you come away thinking... Well, you're in his building. You know, well, it's not his building, is it? But it sort of, it looks like his it building. Fe- it feels like his building. This is David Howden's building with about, I don't know, about 12 out of 17 floors are Howden. Yeah, they are. Well, the thing is that I knew David years and years ago when I was a broker and he was the wholesale DNO guy. And I was working for the biggest Spanish insurance broker in the world. And suddenly there was an EU directive in the early 90s where all the large corporate clients of that broker that was Gilly Carver, how they used to work, suddenly had to buy DNO. And no one had ever bought DNO, as far as we knew, in Spain. Right. And it didn't exist as a product in Spain. So, of course, luckily they had their London office. Of course, we'd never done DNO either. But the great thing about London is you can run around and find someone who's wholly independent, not going to compete with you, not going to nickel your clients. Yeah. And a great guy, this guy called David Howden. And it was him and Giddy Carvajal supported him as, as, as a great wholesale broker. And honestly, I can tell you, he hasn't changed. He's exactly the same person. So if I ever go to meet him or do a podcast or something with him or whatever, just his energy is exactly the same. He's the same mm. person. People carried on doing business with him just because he didn't gave them great service, did a good job. At the beginning, he was a massive DNO specialist. Yep. But of course, now he's obviously been able to move that ethos. Now that this business is thousands and thousands of employees, there's something that he's managed to distill from that early day. And I remember we used to give crates of Rioja to our suppliers, you know, and as a junior broker, I had to lug these things around the market. It was exhausting in the middle of December. <laughs> and we were quite busy with a few renewals as well. And turn up with a crate of Rioja. And I remember going to his, it was his, his office, I think St. Dunstan's Hill. It was Howden Pangborn at the time. And it, he does chime with the story that he does at conferences about him. It was just him and a dog and, and he just yeah. got divorced. And, and it was, yeah, he didn't have anything, but he looked out and he saw that he had the London market to go and sell to the rest of the world. And that's what he did. And that's absolutely true. So I remember, I think, the, I remember there was a dog in there. 
producers, Tim and Louise Campbell Alexander and Mark yeah. Pembourne. And I had to go up the stairs with this box of Rioja, but it hasn't really changed. He is somebody, when I spend time with him, I come away feeling I could conquer the world. I mean, he's an energy giver, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's one of those people. But he must get home and he's completely exhausted and conks out and then just suddenly wakes up with tons of energy again. I don't know how he does it. So on the carrier side, what do you think are the characteristics of a really good carrier? Well, I was a broker, so it's about being consistent. When you know as a broker and you're doing business with someone, you know that they're going to like this or that they're not going to like this. And then at least, so at least you prepared. You're not going to like this, but we can do it this way. And that might work. What do you think? But the worst thing is, well, you know, going to an underwriter, you never quite know which side of bed they've got out of. And you don't know what you're going to get. And I've sat also sitting in Madrid, consuming London as a retail broker, sending business wholesale into London. And that wholesale broker, again, when they're acting as that almost the marketing arm of that underwriter, some of them are a bit too much. They won't show it to the underwriter until you've done all this stuff. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, no, I think, why don't you just show it to them? They might actually like it. You know, because I want an answer quicker. So consistency is good. And that quality of consistency, just because the wind's changed, now is exactly the time when that consistency, you know, it, this is why, you know, the winners win and the losers lose over a really long game, a long cycle, 20-year cycle, that the winners win because they have the courage of their convictions, they have capital to back up those convictions, and generally they have a good track record against those convictions. But when everyone's worrying about, can you price for climate change, they've been pricing for climate change forever. Yeah. You know, and they've got capital based on that, and they're putting the up returns that are actually realistic based on that, taking into account the real world today and their own expertise, and they're not scared. They're not suddenly scared just because the price of retros, you know, when their retro is not viable anymore, they're, they're happy to take it net. And Stuart, you've worked in not just the insurance industry, but other industries as well. So it gives you a little bit more perspective, perhaps, or distance on what's good. So if, if I ask you the same question, what are those characteristics? How do you view it? If I look back over my career in the insurance world, for me, it's about really focusing on the basics, focusing on what the business is and every morning getting up and trying to do those basics well and get it right. And I think if you take what is essentially a fairly simple business, get your pricing right, get your data right, get your knowledge right, just keep focused on that and absolutely make sure that the pricing and the relationships around the market work. You challenged me once as to whether a company could grow 10% a year at a 90% combined for 10 years on the trot, on the basis that nobody had ever actually done that. Probably still the case, isn't it? Probably still is the case, but then if we added a few averages in, I think we find some companies that have done pretty well in that. But again, if you look at their characteristics, I would say they really stick to their business model, really have a focus and know where they sit in the market. Do you agree with that, Richard? Because you've had this luxury of being able to conceive of a brand new, clean insurance business, which is great because you're probably only once in a lifetime sort of experience yeah. that you're able to do that. And you've had your blank piece of paper and presumably you must have asked yourself this question, how do I make the perfect insurance business? So the ones that I look at, I mean, I think people will have different views as to how they judge and value a company and look at what the best ones are. The ones that I always respect and admire and actually have done well from a financial point of view are the ones where there's a strong underwriting lead. So if I look at good examples of that, if you look at Beasley, I'm a big fan of Adrian, he's a great guy, but he spent his life trading risk, underwriting risk, accepting risk, pricing risk. You look at Renry and Kevin O'Donnell, again, somebody else who just knows the business inside out. I mean, he knows how to write a contract, how to price it, whether they should be in the market, out the market or not. You look at the Arch guys, and I think Arch is a tremendous success story, and they've made some huge calls in their careers. And Mamoon and Nicholas, I think that team with Mark, 
you know, I think Mark leads an incredible team. I interviewed him and, once. and they're all under. I mean, they, they've they've all got a view. You ask them their opinion on aviation war or property cat or mortgage, they've got a view. You know, so I think they're very much underwriter-led businesses. We saw Ross and Martin from Pure who are going through London at the moment. And again, that's a company. Every time I talk to those guys, I mean, they fascinate me. One, they're just really, really nice people. But they talk about underwriting. They don't talk about brand or they don't talk about processing or operating expenses or all those other things, which are really critical and important in development of a company. But their fundamental love in life and their knowledge is hands-on detailed knowledge of the underwriting process. And I think it's hard. If you're leading a company, you've never underwritten a risk. You've never broke to risk. It's hard to really get to grips and feel confident about where you take your company. I remember, actually, I also very much enjoyed interviewing Jim Stannard again. Yeah. Again, it was just one of those people who thought, if I did business with this person, I think I'd enjoy it. Uh, I completely agree. what I paid for and a bit more. And, well, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're all great fun to be with. All the people we talked about are all great fun. Yes. I mean, if you sat and had dinner, you'd have a laugh. Now, I think that says something about their passion and enthusiasm for the business and their characteristic as a person. But you're right, massive high-integrity people who you know that you can trust. Why don't we ask you what you've learned in the first two years? of running your own business, obviously, because it's, it's different when you're in a larger corporate structure. You know, you do run divisions, you run different the, There's also, there's momentum in a corporate structure. You know, when you join a business that's up and running, it's, and your part, it's going, and so it will some degree will carry on going, you know, so it's not quite the same. This is a bit like the Buffett thing. There was the Buffett memoir, it was called The Snowball, and it was a bit, it takes a while to get going. Once, yeah. it, once you're rolling it down the hill, it really starts to pick up its own, you know, it sort of multiplies. Has it been a bit like that? Sort of, it's hard to start. And then once you've got it rolling, is it okay? And then it sort of takes on its own life. It is, but it's amazing how quickly it can go off direction. <laughs> you know, so I think the big things for us, we set the business up with the idea of being a highly focused operation. So we would do a limited number of lines of business, but we would go deep. So we would employ leaders in their field people who the market and customers trusted and valued. We would back them up with the ability to underwrite and analyze risk well and bring the capacity and the relationships and the ability to get in front of a customer and do well. That was the business model, focus and go deep. And I think the biggest challenges that we face, and I think, thank goodness, have come through the other side, is not getting too distracted. And particularly in that first year, less so in the second, because I guess people kind of take the hint, but in the first year, there are so many I've got this great idea. You know, you've got this great team. We've got this great opportunity. You should do this. And they all somehow don't quite fit into the mold of the sort of risks that we want to underwrite and the sort of portfolios we want to develop. So it would have been very easy in that first year to pursue all sorts of potential opportunities. And it's sometimes really difficult to say no, to sort of be unhelpful in a strange way. It's slightly countercultural to say, I think this might be an opportunity, but it's not for us. So I think not getting distracted has been a big part of what success we've seen so far. And I hasten to add, we're in the very early stages of our development. So, And how's it been on that technical side? That I know you wanted to bring in technology and data science well, and so things to bear. Have you been able to do that? I think we have. I think some of that is just technical advancement. So, you know, you can process data sets. You can read documents. We were talking as you came into our office about some of the changes in technology in your industry in journalism, the ability to transcribe and use software that is incredibly powerful now is, is huge. It's the same for us. The ability to read hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of 10Ks, 10Qs to look for insights in those documents. That's possible to do now in tens of hours 
rather than days, weeks, months, years, it would have taken to do that either manually or in early forms of technology. So some of the work that we're doing now we haven't been able to do before is because of that, that advance in technology, the ability to look for these sorts of insights is better than it's ever been. I mean, our business has lost about marginal improvement, isn't it? It's about how do you make slight improvement here, slight improvement there, and that adds to it. Well, I think the other thing I would say is, is the advantage of starting up is you've very much got some brilliant people who are much more meant for the business of today, where you have got that computing power, those data feeds. So if you looked at our workforce, a lot of young people, I think, are just much more IT literate than perhaps the older ones sitting around this table. For the listener's pleasure, he's looking at me. <laughs> but also you, you have a much higher element of very strong math skills, actuarial skills within the team who can give the basis of how you trade. And it must be a basis of how you trade because actually judgment and communication skills are still right at the heart of the London market. But actually, you want to mix those two now. So you're looking at some real all-rounders in the people that come in with a real can-do attitude that they can manage to assemble all that information and turn it into a good practical use within the underwrite. And so what's your advice to those younger people? If they want to advance their career, either as a broker or underwriter or whatever, what's the best advice you can give them? I mean, you know, let's, let's well, all face we're all probably nearer the end of our careers than we are at the beginning, right? Sadly so. We talk about this a lot because how you identify those incredibly talented professionals and your future stars is a very imprecise science and a fascinating one to me at a personal level. When I look at the sort of features of the people who seem to succeed and do incredibly well, I, th I think there are a couple of sort of common features. We talk a lot about curiosity. I think people who inherently have a desire to figure out, in our case, for example, who are the biggest competitors? You know, what's their business strategy? How do they perform? Why do they perform better or worse? Um, what is it that they're doing that we can learn from? And the people who have that sort of restless curiosity to understand not only our business, but if they're in, you mentioned offshore energy, I think earlier, you know, what are people thinking about it in the industry? What's coming down the line that's going to be of interest? They just seem to have a burning desire to understand things. And I think that's an incredibly powerful attribute. I think inevitably you have to take a risk in your career and push yourself forward. And I think if I look at my own career, there were various points when I made myself feel very uncomfortable. And that was fine. You know, that's ultimately how you progress. So you've got to be prepared to push yourself forward and take a risk. But the last thing is the boring one in many ways, but it's just hard work. It is amazing how when you look at the ability of certain people that I've worked with over the years to absorb work and to get through incredible amounts of work. I mean, you'd be wrong to underestimate the sheer value of hard work. And I think the struggle that people have these days is trying to maintain that work-life balance. And it's really hard to know where to draw the line. And ultimately, it's up to you as an individual, as a young person, to know where that line is for you. You've got to, you know, if you've got 10 quotes, you've got to get them out today. You've got to get them out today because you've, you've got, got to, to give those brokers the I service. I think it's very easy. We've, we've right? probably all done it. And maybe everybody does at various points in their career or their life. But it's easy at times to settle into almost like an autopilot mode and to shuffle around the office and talk to people, see some brokers, go out to lunch, play squash, whatever it is you, you do. But actually, you've got to be incredibly disciplined and incredibly productive to really succeed. I, th I, I think you look at all the people who are running you know, the big brokers or the big insurance companies. I mean, they are probably good number of workaholics, and you've got to question whether that's a lifestyle you want. But underlying that extreme example is the incredible value of just plain old hard work and being incredibly disciplined and efficient. 
people I've worked with on the journalism side are incredibly disciplined in that sense, that they're really focused. They're sort of almost able to compartmentalize and say, well, don't mm. talk to me now because I'm doing this. Yeah. And But talk to me in about 45 minutes' time. And then for whatever minutes' time, they are available to talk to. And then they go off again. They're doing something else. We've probably got time for one last really brief question. I know you've got some investors who may want to see how you're getting on. So we should talk about investment. What's your view of the insurance market as an investment? Obviously, presumably you've been in the market for investment. And you also raised capital at a probably quite a difficult time. Why should people be investing in insurance or what's they, when they're looking to invest in insurance? Looking at? We're talking about specialty companies here rather yeah. than the broader term of insurance companies. But I think it's quite an exciting time in the market. Do you think... Obviously, we've had investors effectively sitting on the folded arms, very sceptical, looking at the market, saying that we've heard this great story before, blah, blah, blah. And now we've got some reasonably good news to tell them. Do you think they're going to become more accepting of that news and start opening up their checkbooks? In, in a way, that's what's making it a more exciting market at the minute. That for the first time in the market dislocation, we're not seeing a flood of new capital coming it's quite in. Quite nice, isn't it? And if we if we look back at you know KRW, we look at World Trade Center, then there was a flood of money came in, and that meant that the markets didn't remain strong for as long as they could have done. So I think this is a fairly unique position in the market. It's also an exciting time. I mean, the the investment road over the last few years has been quite a rocky one, and navigating that has been good. But it's not just that we're in one of the best insurance, reinsurance markets. We've also now got a much stronger investment income coming in that 12 months ago, had we been talking, we wouldn't have expected. And I think also when you are in difficult investment markets, and I sit on the board of two investment companies as well, actually to find some non-correlated investments of which insurance is one of them, it's a must-buy product. It's always got to be there. There's a certain safety to it. Negatively, of course, you've got climate change and a lot of other things affecting our businesses. But actually, this is exactly the time in the market where it's an exciting place to be. We've begun to see some of the listed prices move in the market, which I think is encouraging. If we get left alone, we'll end up recapitalizing ourselves on this great profits and investment income, won't we? Um, you know, it won't be that long anyway before we start destabilizing ourselves just by re- retained capital. It always has been a cyclical market. <laughs> so I, do, I don't think that will ever change. But we're in the good part of the cycle at the minute. And it feels to me as though this cycle will be there for slightly longer just because of that unusual nature of very little additional capital coming in. Presumably, you feel as a business you've got investor backing. We're one of the lucky people that, that we didn't draw all our initial capital. So we actually have fresh capital sitting there to allow us to take the advantage of the current markets we're in. That's very, very handy. And do you think the mood will change that you know, we might see more capital coming in from others funding your competitors? I think investors need to see returns, don't they? I mean, we've been terrible as an industry in showing them the sort of returns that they should expect considering the risk they're running. So inevitably... Show me the money if I was the investor, I think. But okay, well, in Q1, they're all going to be showing lots of money and there can be a flood in Q2. I think they might need a bit more evidence than I was, one quarter. I know you said that you've got a hard stop at the moment that the clock is now pointing to. So I don't want to stop talking. But anyway, I think we have to, sadly. Well, let's do this again. Well, we should do it again, book in a bit longer as well, not have a hard stop at the end. So yeah, we're doing a Friday afternoon or something. <laughs> but thank you so much, Stuart and Richard. I've really enjoyed talking and I hope everyone's enjoyed listening. And good luck. It's quite a market, isn't it? It's going to get me most of it. It's a very exciting prospect. So it's, it's, it's not as risk has gone away, has it? No, no. I mean, and everyone's retaining more risk. So, you know, you really have to focus now. But well, this, is a, this is a great year. opportunity. Hope for a good year for everybody. Fingers crossed. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. you very much, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. 
Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.